Hey, everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a real treat for you guys today. I have a member of the healthcare field. I have a microbiologist with me today. Dr. <laughs> Ozzy, am I saying your name correctly, Dr. Ozzy? Perfect, yes. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So this is Dr. Ozzy, and not only is she a microbiologist, but she is also a fellow podcaster. Do you want to just real briefly, before we get started with the pod, uh, with the episode, just tell them about your podcast? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. It's an honor to be here. You know, I've Heard a lot about you, and I've also listened to your podcast, and I think you do an amazing job. Uh, so my podcast is called The Tales of an African Princess in America podcast. And I started it about uh, two years ago, and I wanted to just talk about um, the stories of African immigrants abroad and the great things that they're doing. You know, I moved to America as an international student, and I started out talking about all the challenges of just moving to a new country and adapting and things like that. And I wanted to create a platform for you know, people like me. And that's what I've done with my podcast. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm really happy to have you on because I, I love to introduce different people, different types of professions in the medical field. And this mm. is something so unique. I've never had a scientist on before. So yay! <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm excited. There are a lot of new grads, a lot of nursing students that listen to this podcast. Mm. And I think they're going to be really super excited to hear. This is a fascinating episode. We have some interesting... <laughs> good scientist, bad scientist stories. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess we can talk about the bad scientist story. That's what people are always like. I love the bad, the, the true crime part of the, <laughs> the episode. And a lot of people just cannot wait for this one. Yeah. This, this is a definitely an interesting story. It's mm -hmm. obviously, it's very tragic and it's unbelievable, really. There are just so many things about it that don't make any sense. But it is the story of Amy Bishop. Amy was a neuroscientist and just ended up in an unbelievable situation. And we're going to start at the very beginning. Sure. Just kind of like lay some founda a foundation for, for her life. So she was born April 24th, 1965. And she, she was born in Massachusetts and several times, I don't know why, it seems like about every other, maybe every third or fourth episode, I end up mm -hmm. with a true crime story that that somehow is related to Boston, Massachusetts. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how this happens. Mm -hmm. it, it's just a fluke. I mean, it, and it happens all the time. Boston's you talk a, a big lot city, about, but yeah, you talk a lot about medical field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's probably one of the reasons because you have the big really good, you know, institutions over there. That's like mm -hmm. a hub for really intelligent people to go and do great work in these biotech companies. And, hmm. you know, so it's it's very good attractive, point. I have to tell you. It's very attractive. Well, good point. I uh, That makes me feel a little better. There is another podcaster, Q, Q the nurse, who mm. comes on our pod. He's a friend of our podcast and he comes on quite a bit. And I think he was starting to get a little paranoid because it, it seemed like every time he came on, I had a Boston... <laughs> something bad out of Boston. And I I'm, and I, had, I finally was like, I promise I'm not doing this on purpose. I look <laughs> yeah. for a story. I find the story. Mm -hmm. I get into researching it and I realize it's another one from Boston. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is, uh, it's, it's a little, it's not really necessarily related to Boston, but she did her undergraduate degree at Northeastern University in Boston. Mm -hmm. And her father, Samuel Bishop, was a professor there in the art department. And she got her PhD, actually, in genetics from Harvard mm -hmm. University. Now, apparently there is someone, an anonymous source, 
who says that the work that she did for her dissertation was not the highest quality. <laughs> so uh, this person did not want to go on the record saying, kind of said, hey, just so you know, word on the street was mm-hmm. that she did kind of sloppy work. So I I don't know. It's kind of hard when someone wa- you know wants to say something like that, but they don't, they don't want to back it up by, by saying, given some evidence. But right, right, as, right. We can't do anything with that, but... Not really. It's, it's really difficult go, to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you go along in the story and you see all the other things that happened, then maybe that sort of leads some credibility to to that person's statement. So she was an, an instructor at, of medicine at Harvard for a, for a time. I, I couldn't find anywhere that said how long she was there, but an instructor of medicine there at, at mm-hmm. Harvard, Harvard Medical School. Then she joined the faculty at the Department of Biological Sciences at mm-hmm. the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And she was an assistant professor there in 2003. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there, so this is really the key place um, where the final incident happened with her. But there were several things that happened with Amy over the years. One thing that's interesting about her without before we even get into all of the things that she did, she had written three novels. They were not published, but she hmm. was she wrote these novels. She was members of a writing group when she lived in Massachusetts. And the inter- one interesting thing is about these novels is one of them actually was about a woman scientist who was working on a potential pandemic virus. Mm-hmm. And this, this woman was struggling with suicidal thoughts because there was a threat of her not earning her tenure. And this was in this novel that she had written, unpublished, but she had written it. And she had written this like before she, what, yes. while in graduate school or at what point did she write this? Well... She was, it was, she was in Massachusetts because she was in this writing group in Massachusetts. So mm. she did her undergraduate work. Well, no, she did her, she graduated from Harvard. I, did, I didn't see where, but it was definitely before she went to Alabama. So it was okay. mm-hmm. while, yeah, it was kind of before, before mm. any of this happened, but definitely some strange foreshadowing going on here. Right. I mean, it's hard to even think that she predicted her own, you know, mm-hmm. future because, in getting into academia and and by the way, I think she probably was at uh, the, the Alabama University for under seven years or between seven to nine years because okay. that's how long, that's the period of time it takes to be tenured. You usually get on the tenure track and then they give you seven years or in some instances, like School of Nursing in some uh, universities, they give you nine years to uh, attain that tenure position. And they give you these set of conditions that you have to meet and, you know, they're usually like, you have to publish, you know, you have to continue to do like service for the university and you have to be creative, things like that. But really what they're saying is you have to bring in money, you have to have grants and you have to publish. And so it's publish or perish. That's something that, you know, a lot of researchers say. And it's a very highly stressful environment. And just listening to her background and you talking about her being a writer and, you know, going to Harvard, that's a big deal. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of us would love to have gotten our PhDs from Harvard because that in itself is a big achievement. But that also sets you up for, you know, a really stressful life as well. 
Yes, because of all of the expectations, expectations I guess. Expectations, yes. Mm-hmm. She, her, some of the people that were in her writer's group said that she liked to throw that around a lot. Mm-hmm. The fact that she, she went to Harvard. The fact that she had an, her uncle was John Irving, who was a novelist, and mm-hmm. she threw that around as well. Mm-hmm. So she, some people, some people in that group said that she wanted to get out of academia that she wanted to get into writing more and she wanted to be published and she she kind of wanted to go down that road. But then, I don't know, that didn't work out for her. So she mm. continued on. And 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 then according to what you're saying is she must have been several years into it there at the University of Alabama yeah. in order for her yeah, to kind of definitely. be in that situation. Yeah. Uh, well, something else that stood out to me was the fact that she seemed really intelligent, like yeah. just, and I would say this for anyone getting a PhD, that's a really stressful, stressful thing to get to do on its own. You know, when you're getting to get your PhD, you usually have people who are like, I'll call them local champions from their own different universities. They're probably the top of their class in a little school from Alabama or from like me, a place in Nigeria. And then we come to a PhD program where you have everyone who is good at what they do and you put them together. And that environment is really stressful because it creates like a competitive environment where people are just mm-hmm. trying to be the best. So it's very, very stressful. And then if you have someone who we think have, has a psychological condition added to that stress, that can lead to breakdown, that really bad breakdown. Well, the thing is, what you're saying there is that you have these extremely intelligent people that are probably mm-hmm. used to standing out among mm-hmm. their cohorts. Mm-hmm. Then you put all these extremely intelligent people together and all of a sudden you don't stand out anymore nope. now. Mm-hmm. There's a someone who there probably are people who stand out in that group, but yes. you're it's so competitive mm-hmm. that I mean, think if you you can look at it two ways. You can look at it like the least intelligent or the least successful person in that group is still extremely intelligent and successful, right. but the way they are probably looking at it, or maybe she was looking at it, is no, I I, I want to be at the top of this group, and mm-hmm. maybe she wasn't quite cutting the mustard, maybe so. Yeah the administration at the University of Alabama, what they said in regards to her tenure there was that she was not performing the way she needed to. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily that she wasn't doing good work. It's that she wasn't doing what she needed to do. She wasn't mm-hmm. publishing. She Yeah. So it seemed like she was more concerned about maybe writing or more concerned about other things. And she wasn't doing the things that she needed to do in order to be able to have those list of accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And when it came down to it, they were not going to to give her her tenure. And they, when they announced it, she was not happy about it, of course. Yeah, that crushed her. Mm-hmm. And, and I think yeah. she just looked at it like, she's, she seems to be the type of person who blames someone else, has to have someone else to blame. Like nothing is my fault. Mm-hmm. I've got to have someone else to blame and not, not just blame, maybe actually reach it out and hurt someone else. She just can't. She's got to take her frustrations out on someone. Right. So I think she she probably has a history of violence too. And like mismanaged anger or anger issues where she just doesn't know what to do when she gets upset and she takes it out on everyone else. You know, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's a shame. Yeah, there were some of her colleagues there at at the university said that she's had some bizarre behavior. She would mm-hmm. interrupt meetings. She would just kind of go out on a tangent, just 
they would use words like she was strange. She would, mm. you know, just out in left field, that sort of thing. She had that sort of reputation. Some of her, her students complained about her, not just, now that's not unusual at all, of course, for students to complain <laughs> about an they instructor. They complain all so, the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I would not, I would have just breezed right past that, mm-hmm. except the fact that several of them got together and petitioned to have her removed. And so for it to get that, to go to that uh, extreme, mm-hmm. that seems a little Concerning. usually, mm-hmm. yeah, because you know, and they, and they said that her behavior in the classroom was very unsettling. Mm-hmm. She was ineffective, ineffective, odd, you know, that sort of thing. And so dozens of, of students were, you know, went to the department head and, and signed a petition and to try to get some changes made because it was, she was difficult to work with. I mean, I think most people, but especially by the time you get to that level in, in academia, you understand that there's just going to be some professors that are not as easy to work with. And you mm-hmm. just get through the class and then move on. Even yeah. you might complain about it. You may need a vent, whatever. But for that many to come together, there had to have been some pretty, pretty difficult um, issues with her. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, stood out to me also just reading up, researching this and watching a couple of videos about it. it. It seems like she started off good where people thought she was nice. She was doing, you know, doing her students thought she was good. You know, she was with the research. Everything was going on well. But I think a lot of people and this is a problem with academia. Even I am presently presently going through that right now is that people don't appreciate how stressful that environment is. Mm. So you start out at, a, at an institution. You're probably a postdoc right out straight from grad school. And, you know, four years in, you probably you apply for a grant and you're, you know, you're given a faculty position, you're awarded your faculty position and you're put on a tenure track, right? Which means that from the day that they grant that tenure track appointment, you have seven years, seven years to do X, Y, Z. And then at the end of the seven years, we're going to evaluate you. And if you meet the requirements, we're going to put you on, you know, you'll be tenured. And so they're usually like three requirements. They want you to be excellent in research. And that means that you have to write grants, you know, like say to the NIH and ask for mm-hmm. money and you need money to do research, right? And there are a lot of brilliant scientists who are just writing these grants, but they're not getting funded. And that's a big deal. You are not getting funded. And the reason I think is because people tend to give money to people who have been giving money in the past and have done well with that money. So the the researchers who are established, they still get all the money. And so it's really hard for young investigators to just come into the game and write these grants and get funding. And that frustrates a lot of early faculty, right? Early career faculty. Yeah, that and makes then another sense. Thing, mm-hmm, another thing is that they also want you to be good at teaching. And so, you know, they're going to evaluate your teaching, make sure that you know the subject, that your students are giving good uh, assessment of your teaching. And that's so there's teaching, there's bringing in grants, writing these articles. And of course, the third one is service. So you still have to serve on the university board for, you know, be on you know, all these committees and all these things. If you're an MD as well, you have to, you know, see patients, things like that. And so that's really stressful. And so imagine that you started out really good. But on year four, you realize, oh, my God, I don't have a grant. I can't do research, right? 
And then on top of that, you can't publish because you don't have money because you need money to hire postdocs. You need money to hire texts and do all these work. So you're not doing anything. And then on top of that, that pressure, and you probably have family issues. We all have personal life issues, right? You probably have a family that's not too supportive or you have all these things going on. It's very, very stressful. And some people are lucky where everything works out. But for most people, at the end of the seven years, they look at your work and they're just like, well, you don't have, you're a good teacher. You've worked, you've you've been of service to the university, but you just don't have money. You just don't have any grants. So we're going to let you go. And that's really stressful. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit, just briefly, what it means to actually get tenure? What does that mean? What does it mean for the professor if they actually get that? So tenure is basically, it's like your job security in the academic world. So Mm -hmm. the tenure, people who are tenured will be the last to go because their job is basically secured, right? And so you have, it's like you've achieved this height of success where you're just invaluable to the university. We have to keep you. We have to protect your job. Now, it's not impossible to, you know, dismiss someone who is tenured, but it's just a little more difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. Kira, uh, my joke, we call her our executive business manager, and that that's technically mm-hmm. her title, but we kind of laugh about it because she's really just, she just helps with the podcast. But right. she, we were talking about this yesterday, and she asked, mm-hmm. you know, what is tenure? And mm-hmm. I, I said, you know, that's a great question. The way that I described it to her was basically what you said. It's just, mm-hmm. it's because sometimes people in academia, they, they work so hard to get where they are. And year after year, they get raises, they make more money. And at some point, you don't want them to be in a position where they can just, the university can say, oh, we're paying this person so much more money because they've been here for 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. We can pay uh, someone who just got out of school, who just got their degree, a whole lot less. And let's cut this person loose. Well, in order to protect the people who are experienced and who have that who who are more capable from being cut loose in order just to save money. Mm-hmm. That's what this process is supposed to protect from. It's to protect people and to maintain the integrity of the institution and maintain the integrity of the education that's given. And right. th- I, I, I believe that it's like that throughout academia from yeah. all levels. It's like an yeah. indefinite like appointment where in order yeah. to kick you out, there has to be like real cause you know it has it's like you're once you're tenured you're given this it's it's like this is your position for life basically something really bad has to happen for you to get kicked out like the university loses all its money and there's no one money to pay anyone else or you do something really really bad like you know felony or something yeah yeah so what happened is she had to have suspected that this was going to happen but she did get denied tenure and then she she sort of was suspecting that she was not going to even have her teaching contract renewed after this happened, mm-hmm. that, that she was denied tenure in March of 2009. And then she did not think that she was going to have her teaching contract renewed after March 2010. Right. So she thought, okay, I've got another year and then they're going to cut me loose. And so she appealed to the administration, mm-hmm. but then they just looked at this, the the whole situation and looked at the application and they said, well, the process was done the way it was supposed to be done according to policy. Mm -hmm. So they denied her appeal. And then she was just at, so she's still working there. It's not like they fired her, but they just said, we're going to 
we're not going to make it to where we can't fire you. And so she said, oh, she's thinking to herself, I've got one year left. So she's sitting yeah. at this a faculty meeting, not, it, didn't have, it had nothing to do with her tenure. She's just at a, a standard faculty meeting. Mm-hmm. And while she's sitting there, suddenly decides to pull out a gun and open fire on her coworkers, people that she worked alongside, who really, some of them had nothing to do with the fact that she didn't get the tenure. She just right. was angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I'm just wondering, like, do you think that was premeditated? Do you think that she planned out what she was going to do before that meeting? Why well, did she do that? I feel like she probably did because I, well, I mean, I know some people do carry weapons with them, mm. but it seems to me, it seems like it would be odd to to carry a gun in your in your purse. And she had a she had a gun with her. Mm. And the the day of the shooting, she taught class, and she, according to her students, seemed normal, seemed perfectly normal during the lecture. Mm-hmm. She went to this faculty meeting, and. It was, she, it was in room 369 on the third floor of the Shelby Center mm-hmm. for Science and Technology there at, at UAA, uh, UAH, Biology and Math Departments. And there were about 12 to 13 people that, th- that were there at the meeting. Just an ordinary faculty meeting. Her Supposedly from the survivors, her behavior was, seemed normal just mm-hmm. before the shooting. She sat in the meeting for about 30 to 40 minutes. And then she pulled out this nine millimeter Ruger P95. And I know I don't know anything about guns. So I, anytime I say, I'm always just like, this could, have, I might as well be saying a toy revolver because I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was a gun, as all I know is a handgun. And she did pull that out of her bag. And an associate professor who witnessed the whole thing said that she just got up suddenly, took out a gun, started shooting at each. Uh, each one of them. Hmm. She started with the person closest to her and just went down the row shooting at each person. Hmm. Basically, and, and shooting, aiming for their head. Right, so she was shooting to kill. Yeah, she was definitely hmm. shooting to kill. One Another survivor, her name was Deborah Moriarty. She was mm-hmm. the dean of the graduate program and professor of biochemistry. That... Uh, professor said that it was not a random, just a random shooting. It wasn't like she just stood up and randomly started shooting. Mm -hmm. It was an execution, she said. She was deliberately aiming at everyone, every person in the room. Hmm. And those who were shot were on one side of this table. It was an oval type table you can imagine in like a conference room. Right. So she was going around the table. Yes. Hmm. And the five, the five people on the other side, they hit the floor. Mm-hmm. And so after she had fired several rounds, Dr. Moriarty said that she pointed the gun at her and pulled the trigger, mm-hmm. but she she just heard a click. And she said that she yelled, she said to her as she pointed the gun to her, to her please think of my children, think of, you know, please don't do this. She begged mm-hmm. her for her life mm-hmm. and she still pulled the trigger, but it clicked. So it, it, jammed mm-hmm. or ran out of ammunition one or the other and some something was wrong and she realized it so then 
two of she and another, the other one of the other people in the in the room tried to stop her by asking her to stop, and they were trying to help the other survivors and then or, or the other victims. And then what they did is pushed her out of the room, and and mm-hmm. Moriarty, Dr. Moriarty actually ran out into the hall to sort of mm-hmm. lure her out there. And mm-hmm. when she ran out into the hall, Dr. Moriarty ran back into the room and they barricaded the door. Mm, I thought they locked her in there, but it, it does make sense that they they pushed her out in the hall. I yes, see that. Be- yeah, yeah, because you know what? When I first uh, saw this, I because there is a an entire episode like a documentary style mm-hmm, reenact mm-hmm. reenactment, you know, sort yeah. of thing. And when I saw it at first, I thought, did they lock did they lock her in? I thought, uh, like you said, but then mm-hmm. I realized she actually left the building, so they yeah. kind of barricaded themselves in mm-hmm. and then she left. She called her husband and just asked him to come and pick her up. That's something that we haven't even talked about this whole time is her husband. Like she married, yeah. was he a scientist yeah. as well or? Yes, James Anderson. He, mm-hmm. oh, that's a, I don't know that I saw what he does actually. But I saw that they met in 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 either college or where she got her PhD. I, I think, think college. I saw somewhere where they did some sort of scientific experiment together or entered a yeah. contest and won like $25,000. So I think maybe he is, maybe he is a scientist, but I'm not, Yeah, I, I didn't re- real closely into that. But yeah, she was married and mm-hmm. he just came to pick her up. They, there's, I don't know that there's an indication of whether or not he knew what was going on, but they didn't charge him. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, she just called and, you know, can you pick me up? And he picked her up or he was going to pick her up. And then he, when he got there, he saw her being led off in handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And And being arrested. Right. That had to have been just really perplexing if if you Mm -hmm. just can imagine. But But it was also her first time of shooting. Like in her childhood, she had also done something similar, right? Well, and that's the thing. There was Mm. some, this was the end result of all these other things, or or I don't know about result, but it was the final thing that she did. Mm -hmm. There were so many things that she did leading up to this that should have been huge red flags. And I I personally think at some point, had she been stopped for any of the things that she had done, lives would would have been saved. Because at the age of 21, she shot her 18-year-old brother. I think I said she was 18 earlier, but she she was 21. Her brother was 18. Mm. And... They were at their house in Massachusetts. She fired two shots from a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. And even though I don't know anything about guns, I kind of can visualize that because of TV, you know? Right. (laughs) So she fired one into her bedroom wall, and the other Mm -hmm. one went right into his chest. They were in the kitchen with their mother. And Mm. according to uh, stories from, from witnesses, she pointed the weapon at a moving vehicle on the side of the road and tried to get into the vehicle. So she ran out of the house, still holding the shotgun, pointed Mm -hmm. it at a vehicle and was trying to get away and wasn't successful. But the interesting thing about that is that the police department in that area, Braintree is the name of the area, classified it as an accident. Right. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many things in this story that just don't make sense. So... Mm-hmm. They classified it as an accident because they said that the dad had bought this shotgun 
And he was, Mm -hmm. you know, in case of any kind of intrusion and they were supposed to have this to protect themselves. And I guess she had heard something downstairs and thought someone, it was an intruder or something. And that's why she shot, right? But then run out of the house and, you know, like you said, trying to get a vehicle to, to, to get away, basically, that was after the fact, right? Most people would, I would imagine if you do something, you know, and it's a mistake, you probably would be there devastated, crying, you know, mm-hmm. trying to call for help. You know, you, you probably wouldn't know that he's dead already. You try to, you know, do something. But in this case, she was trying to get away. And something that I always wonder is what her parents did after the whole thing was done. Growing up, I, I, you know, at some point I had a temper, really bad temper, actually. I was a very good student in school, but I had a temper. And one day, you know, I, we used to wear these uniforms to school. And one day my sister actually wore my uniform and we were so late for school. And I was like, that's my uniform. And she's like, no, it's, you know, it's mine. And we had this argument and I picked up like a, a little thing, like what I, it was just something that was on the table. Um, it was like an adapter and I threw it at her. Right. And it went straight for her forehead. Right. And as soon as I did that, my mom was like, okay, this stuff's now. She took me to school and she reported to my favorite teacher. Mm-hmm. And now that what that does is, see, for someone who does really well in school, at the time I used to be really good in school, in school is where you shine, basically. Your teachers are like, they see you as this golden child. And so reporting you to your favorite teacher is like crushing because now they know that you're not perfect, you know? Mm. And so that was so crushing for me. But that was actually the day my life changed. Now when I talk to people, a lot of people say, well, you're really good at keeping your cool and not getting upset <laughs> and things like that. No, it wasn't always that way. It's something happened. There was a turning point where my mom was just like, you know what? I'm going to hit you where it hurts the most. I'm going to do something to you that will make you understand that this is not right. You cannot lose your temper like this. So a lot of times when things happen like that, I th- I feel like you don't just let it go because mm-hmm. there's an underlying issue. You need to do something about it. Your kids are, you know, throwing tantrums right now. They're doing things that don't seem important or you know, it's just a kid. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, I threw an adapter. It's not a big deal. My sister wasn't hurt. She was fine. But what if my mom had let that go and say, oh, it's fine. She's a, she's a child. Then next time I'll try something a little worse, you know. There were kids in my school who were throwing knives and, you know, they're like, oh, she just has a terrible temper. But no. So I think when that happened and I don't know if she got the help that she needed, but she should have gotten some kind of help. Yeah. And the thing is that her mother, rather than and, and I know her mother was trying to protect her. I'm sure she yes. didn't want to see yes. her go to prison. Yes. But she described the shooting as an accident. She and Amy mm. both said it was an accident that they, you know, <clears throat> it, there was no no argument there was there was no split second decision there was no you know just oh I just got angry I don't know what I was thinking it was just like oh I didn't even realize it was my brother Mm. so the thing is that I I kind of don't see how it would have been the first time that that she would have lost her temper if this was if this incident was her losing her temper yes Yes. I, I kind of doubt pulling, yeah, pulling a shotgun on your brother was the first thing you, you had done. So maybe if what you're saying is maybe at at some point earlier in her childhood, her mother had stopped when she picked up something to throw at her brother mm-hmm. and said, oh, we're going to stop this right now. This is not right. going to happen. This is not the behavior that we're going to be. This is not the way we're going to be acting in this house toward our... And, and now there's not just her mom. Like a lot of times we put the blame on the mom where we're just like, mm-hmm. you should have known that your daughter was this and that. Sometimes it's it could be the dad. It could be an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor. That's very true. And sometimes children respond a little better to someone that's not their parent, really. Sometimes right. the parents can just 
Tiddler Blue in the face keeps saying over and over again, you know, this isn't going to happen, giving them all sorts of consequences and they're not having any any help. But just like what your mom did, your mom said, you know, if you're, you know, maybe you're not going to listen to me, but I know yeah. you're going to listen yeah. to your teacher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, oh, is yeah. Gonna, this is going to get to you. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the police, when they found that shotgun, there was a live round in the chamber of the shotgun. And that meant that she had to have racked the side of the weapon after she shot her brother because it would have simultaneously ejected that spent shell and then reloaded the chamber. Mm. So that's the thing. I'm totally lost. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, and mm-hmm. I kind of, I don't really either, except mm-hmm. I, I, what I'm envisioning is that the way that this, quote, pump action mm. uh, shotgun worked is you shoot it and now the shell, I guess, is still in there and you have to uh, eject it by, mm. you, you know, you have to rack the slide of the weapon. I don't know what that oh, means, okay. but I'm just like slide this thing back and forth. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the, the, the empty shell casing pops out. Mm-hmm. And then the next one, you I don't know if you have to manually put it in there or if there's another one behind it, but however that works. Right. People listening to this podcast that know about weapons are probably rolling their eyes rolling right now. Rolling their so eyes sorry. and saying, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but but I I think I'm sort of close. Maybe you guys definitely mm-hmm. feel free to email me and, and correct me. I'd be nice because I just don't know. I don't know, but I, I think that maybe that's probably something what happened. But I, but I think the important thing to take away from this is that that means she didn't just pull the trigger, realize, oh my gosh, it's my brother. Drop the gun, go to help mm-hmm. him, call 911, mm-hmm. do what you need to do. She she pulled the trigger, then did that slide back and forth thing where it popped the the shell out and put another one in and then ran out of the house with the, with the shotgun, mm. pointed it, you know, so that's some behavior there that maybe does is not consistent with someone who just walked in thinking it was a uh, an intruder and accidentally shot her brother. Right, right. And in and it, even though that is what happened, the state police just kind of looked into it very briefly and then said, no, it was an accident. And they did not press any charges. They didn't file any charges whatsoever. Um, what There was some speculation that her mother was was somehow connected to the district attorney who was mm. later elected as a U.S. congressman. Okay. And so some somehow maybe some political connections that her mom had helped sweep this under the rug. That's sort of what I think what a lot of people think happened with right. that. So that was mm. the first big incident that happened to her, that, she, that, she, that she did. In 1993, she and her husband were actually suspects in a letter bomb case. Hmm. Yes. So Paul Rosenberg, he is a, a Harvard Medical School professor and a physician mm-hmm. at Children's Hospital in Boston, received a package that contained two pipe bombs, but they did not explode. They they failed to explode. And he was, Paul Rosenberg was Bishop, Amy Bishop's supervisor right. at Children's Hospital at the neurobiology lab. So mm-hmm. she was concerned that um, she was going to get a negative evaluation from him mm-hmm. and had been in a dispute with him, supposedly. Hmm. And so she resigned from her position there 
because he felt that she was not meeting the standards required for the work that she was mm-hmm. doing. Right. And I guess it seems it, like mm-hmm. you're, you're right. Absolutely. Where you'd say that there's a pattern with her not being able to properly channel her emotions, like what she's feeling, you know, anger management and things like that. It seems like that's just what it is. Every time she's, she fails, and you know how I said, you have to learn how to fail to succeed, basically. Every time she fails, she gets really upset and she does something. Now, could she have built this pipe bomb? Now, it's not, they never, you know, were able to prove that she actually sent it, right? Because they couldn't get around to go in her house and check things out. But if truly she did do this, then how much of this did her husband know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Some witnesses that were sort of involved in this whole situation involving the the letter bomb said that she was very upset and appeared to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown Hmm. when all of this happened. So there was just a lot of allegations kind of floating around. And when it came right down to it in the investigation, the two, she and her husband did not cooperate Mm -hmm. with the investigation, as you can imagine. And (laughs) they didn't let them search their home. They, they, They refused to take polygraph tests. Sometimes people will go th- go through these steps in order to try to clear their name. I don't know that it's necessarily a good idea to do that because sometimes you open yourself up and people are kind of going on a... Um, sometimes uh, these prosecutors or, or uh, investigators get it in their head what they think happened, and that's not right. necessarily what happened. So I, mm-hmm. I can understand why someone would refuse to cooperate. Right, because they're probably also pressured to close a case and to solve yeah. the mystery. So, yes. so sometimes happens. they have a theory and they try to oh, yes. you know go with that. So that's why you know we can't really say if truly she did that. I know just working with researchers and having supervisors, like in most cases, most people have a good relationship with their supervisors. But so, once in a while, you get one that ugh, I had, you know, I had friends who probably didn't like their supervisors, but it never got to the point where, oh my God, they were planning to kill him. You know, it's it's more like, I'm so frustrated with him right now. I don't want to see him. Um, there yeah. are times in the PhD program or even the postdoc position where your supervisor wants so much from you. They're, you know, demanding uh, results all the time. And so you avoid them. I think most people avoid their supervisors, you know, but if you want to succeed, you have to work with them because these people can essentially just decide how your career is going to turn out. So it's, it's like a necessary evil. You have to get along with them or you find another supervisor because, you know, it's, you're setting yourself up for failure if you don't get along with these people. Yes. It's it's so, so. true. It's so true. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that in, the, these incidents that happen in in and of themselves, you might be able to take this one incident, even her shooting her brother. You could take that one incident and say, may, maybe isolate it off to to the side, and mm-hmm. maybe think, well, maybe it was an accident, or maybe there's un- enough evidence to prove that it wasn't an accident, or she's got a, there's a witness, her mother. Then you take this incident and say, well, there was just not enough evidence. They did not think they had enough evidence to to even file charges. So they never filed charges against her. They they did not charge her at all. And even after the incident happened, after the shooting mm-hmm. at U, uh, UAH, they still even went back and looked at the incident to decide, like, do we need to go back and look at this at all? And they said that the investigation back in 1993 was appropriate and thorough, mm-hmm. so... They didn't even pull it back up. 
But that's mm. not even the only other thing that happened. In 2002, she was charged with punching a woman because <laughs> she went, she was at the International House of Pancakes. She was at the IHOP in, Massach- <laughs> in Massachusetts. And apparently tensions run high at IHOP when you, hmm. you're there with your children and you need a booster seat and you go to get a booster seat and another person is, you know, another customer is there about to, and they grab the last one. Right. So she I went no over idea. to... I have to ask you because you have kids. Like, is that how women, women with kids feel? Like, I don't have any kids right now, so I can't relate to that. But is it that frustrating when you're trying to get a booster seat for your child and you can't find one or they tell you that they don't have any? <laughs> Does that mean you turn around and go home? Like, what happens? I have three children and I've literally never, ever had this problem before. I can't even wow. imagine blaming another person just for ha- just for being there and being a customer and and having the booster seat even if they're even if they did get the last one mm-hmm. but it really enraged Amy Bishop because wow. when she saw that that woman got the last one she went over to her and demanded that she give her hmm. the seat and just started using all sorts of salty spicy language mm-hmm. right there in the IHOP and just going on it, throwing a tantrum. And but the woman refused to give the seat to her. So she punched mm-hmm. her in the head. Wow. And while she was punching her, she was yelling, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. Harvard educated. <laughs> I wonder if she wasn't saying that. I am a Harvard Harvard educated. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, what in the world? I can't even imagine this kind mm. of behavior. Mm. So very entitled. She seemed like she somehow thought she was above everyone around her mm-hmm. and that she was entitled to everything, whether it's the booster seat or tenure or <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Right. She, it seems like a good evaluation. Wherever she goes, whatever she is is wanting, it's like it she doesn't it doesn't matter what it is. She's entitled to have whatever she wants whenever she wants it. And if she doesn't get it, she has no ability to restrain herself she just attacks someone hmm. it's it just... seems like she killed three people and well four people mm-hmm. plus her brother did yeah. she get the death penalty for this no she did not so kind of getting back to the shooting so all of these mm. things happened and leading up to this and you know my initial thought was this this should have never happened at mm-hmm. the university of alabama how in the right. world this happened but she, let's see, um, when she was arrested, she, they, they were saying to her, do you, you know, they were asking about the deaths of her colleagues. And, and like, like you said, there were three people at right. the, during that, you know, for the, this incident that happened, there were three people that died. And she said, there's no way they're still alive. She hmm. was, that's what she said. She kept saying, they're still alive. That didn't happen. This didn't happen. And when they interviewed her husband, he, uh, that's when that he told her, yeah, she called him, she called me to pick her up, but he said that he she had borrowed a gun, mm-hmm. but he didn't know, and he had taken her to a shooting range. But oh he wow, says, mm-hmm. just people do that. I get you know people do that. They they go to shooting ranges and practice shooting, mm. and then of course something like this happens, and you're like, how did somebody not know? But I mean, a lot of people you go to shooting ranges. And, and practice shooting guns that don't then use them to kill people. Right, but, right. So in 2012, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Hmm. 
I don't know that she, Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty, so they didn't even bother to try her for the incident that happened, like to go back maybe and to try her for her brother's shooting. But right. mm-hmm. since she got life in prison and with, you know, with no parole, there's no, you can't really get more than that. She's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess wow. I don't, maybe they don't have the death penalty in, in Alabama. I didn't look that up, so I'm not sure. But I'm not sure either. Like I was uh, watching a different show and they were talking about how California actually is the one state that uh, sentences a lot of people to death. Um, in the uh-huh. U.S., so I I I don't know about other states, but I I know California definitely is the one that you know does that a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I think so, Texas as well. Texas mm. is another one. Oh that, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And Texas is kind of known for not only do they hand out the death penalty mm-hmm. quite a bit down there, they they actually go ahead. With they the, do it. They are mm. yes, they go through with it and mm-hmm. quicker, a lot quicker than other states. Tennessee, where I live, they mm-hmm. we do have the death penalty here, mm-hmm. and everybody that listens to this podcast knows that I I do not believe in the death penalty. I, mm. I don't like to get into politics on on this show, but I don't have a problem saying that I I, I feel like I have a right to my opinion, and I mm. yeah sure I, I don't agree with it, but the state of Tennessee does have the death penalty, but. It generally takes 15 to 20 years before it all of the appeals processes and, and that sort of thing are, are completed mm-hmm. and before it's actually carried out in, in this state. But I think in other other states, it happens pretty fast. So, hmm. yeah. So that's how that ended. And that's that's our bad scientist story. Yeah. I think, I think the lesson here for me is just that having a good work-life balance and realizing that you know, the job that you're doing right now is not the end of the world. It's really mm-hmm. not the end of the world. It's not the only job that you can do. If it doesn't work out, hey, try another industry. You're good at something else. You know, figure what the, figure out what that is. And it's never too late to change career. Like when I was growing up, my parents had one job and that was their job for life. But mm-hmm. it's not it's not the case right now. You can work as a nurse today and look at you, you're a podcaster, right? If nursing doesn't work out and you decide that, oh my God, I can't look at blood anymore. You can become a podcaster. You can become a writer. You can do so much more with your life. You don't have to go down with that job that's not working out, you know? And so just having a great work-life balance for me, that's the question I always ask people when I go for seminars is, how do you balance it all? Like, how do you have a great job and then have, you know, a great um, family relationship and all these things? And a lot of things that, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm learning from just all these seminars is, People who succeed at their jobs, or let me say women now, women who are leaders at their jobs, they either have a great family relationship where they're married and it's a healthy relationship, or they're not married at all. So they're single or they're in a good relationship. But there's something about being in an environment that's not that's toxic that just makes your life horrible. And so, you know, just we I think we need to evaluate that all the time. Like, where am I with my job? Where am I with my family? Make sure that things are working out. Don't put things off because then, you know, one day someone snaps. You know, someone said that we're all one step away from insanity or, but it's not, is that really true? Do we have to wait till it gets to that point? I don't think so. I think we can. Yeah, that's the thing. Can, mm. Are we all capable if we continue to let our, allow ourselves to be in these stress, stressful situations and just keep going down the same road and yeah. just the snowball effect happens and before you know it, one thing has led to another and you're just mm-hmm. in a, somewhere you never thought you would end up being. I think a, a lot of people, week after week after doing all these stories, I think there are a lot of people that end up on the bad nurse story or a bad doctor story or bad 
scientist story who never would have thought they would have been there. And they, right, right, it right. really is a series of really bad decisions and maybe a series of not only bad decisions, but just not, not getting help when they mm-hmm, needed mm-hmm. to get help, you know. That is so true. We always like to end on a positive note. And so as much as possible, or at least somewhat of an uplift, just at, at the very least redeem our, uh, pr- the profession that we've been picking on for the past, you know, 30, 40 minutes talking about the bad scientists. There are definitely lots of good, wonderful scientists out there doing amazing things. So this was a neuroscientist that we were talking about. So I tried to find a neuroscience story. and. I found this one on yale.edu talking about, this was from about a year ago, but it was talking about scientists restoring some functions in a pig's brain hours after the pig had died. And this was, this is, it's a very complicated story. It's a very complicated article that we're not going to necessarily get into all the details because who has time for that? And I don't even understand it. You could understand it, but I <laughs> just sent you this article this this afternoon so, or this morning. So it's, it's not even worth getting in. You know, we don't really need to go there. The important thing mm-hmm. is there are scientists doing wonderful, amazing things. But when it comes to trying to maybe re-stimulate the brain after mm-hmm. death, what do you think about maybe some ethical issues regarding this? But I, I mean, I, I still am impressed and I, and I know it needs to be done, but still there's some right. gray, gray area. No pun intended, gray area. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, the, the article that you sent me basically was, you know, a group of scientists that were looking at a pig's brain, basically, and mm-hmm. they found that they could still detect electrical activity that are associated with perception, uh, awareness, and, and even consciousness hours, I think up to four hours after the pig had died, right? And that is challenging a lot of what we know because we think that, we currently think that when people die within seconds, you know, all that activity shuts down. And so these scientists were able to find that no, in actually in pigs, you know, up to four hours later, you could, you know, keep that activity going. And so that's groundbreaking. Um, but I don't know how that would translate to human work, you know, because the human brain is more complex, I would say. And um, but it's it's definitely good because now we can study a little bit more all these diseases like stroke. We can look at other therapies. Alzheimer's. Drug therapies. Yes, we can look at all these things. So that's groundbreaking. Um, but there's also the ethical side to it where we're just like, okay, well now we're messing with consciousness and life and death and how far can we go with this stuff? And so I think that's where, it, you know, scientists are doing great work and we applaud them for it. You know, I'm so excited about that because... Even thinking about this coronavirus thing, I've been a little concerned because every time they talk about it and do these press conferences, I don't see any scientists up there talking about, you know, anything. You know, they don't bring in scientists to the fore. It's it's still the same thing where they're talking about, well, let's talk to the MDs and, you know, it's just an ongoing battle battle between MDs and PhDs. But, but I would have loved to see the actual scientists who are doing that work, you know, coming and talking about it. And so... Um, that's just on the side. But yeah, there's always the problem of ethics where, you know, we just don't know how far is too far. And I was telling you the story earlier of the Chinese doctor who did a research with Gene Editing where he took HIV positive men and he took HIV negative women and they, you know, you know made them have babies and the embryos. He he edited the genes that would make them the babies resistant to getting the virus. And he was successful. It was actually a great 
work that he did because he created these babies, the very first babies that are resistant to HIV. But he, he you know, he, he also bagged, I think, three years in prison because what gives you the right to do that? And, you know, wh- while you're saying this is good science and good research, some people are then going to take those same principles and do wrong. And so we need to have regulations and universal regulations so so that someone in China is not doing it. Because what's going to happen is if we can't do it in the United States, we're going to all go to China or wherever in the world it's allowed and do those things. But we need to recognize the people who are doing great work. And I, even though the guy was in prison, I think it was groundbreaking research. And um, I'm excited that people are doing things like that. Oh, I am too. I think the actual name of the technology, the system that they were using to sort of, mm-hmm. I guess, perf- reperfuse the brain is mm-hmm. called Brain X. That's mm. the that's what they, I guess, the brand or what they decided to call a system. And they just connect connected the brain into this system through the vasculature and were using this solution that they came up with that right. is supposed to preserve the brain tissue and we're just finding some activity. It was not definitely not at all compatible with life, or it, was, it, it, it was not anywhere near um, as if you know, bringing the pig back to life or anything like that. But even right. though it wasn't, they still were being very careful just in mm-hmm. case there is pain involved. Mm-hmm. So, re, you know, stimulating that brain, if if for any reason that activity were to cause the the animal to be feeling pain, they would definitely have been ready to step in and do something about that, as is what yeah. they were saying. Because mm-hmm. you were saying earlier, when you and I were talking before we started recording, that there are so many regulations regarding this um, mm-hmm. animal rights issues, because we don't want to be, um, like you said, we have to do, if you're, if you want to have advancements in, in uh, medicine and yeah. other technologies. I mean, you, yeah. it has to you be can't regulated. just experiment yeah. on in human beings. So, mm-hmm. but then you have to be regulated to not be hurting and causing pain in animals. Right, right, right. Yeah, these are two great stories. Actually, examples where people, equally talented people, are doing, you know, work that they know how to do. But in one case, you know, all these. Issues, and we can argue, you know, that psychological issues with the with the scientist, the lady that we talked about, the bad scientist, and then under a good scientist story where they're actually using their research to try and change the world in a positive way. And I think these are two powerful stories that we can all like draw lessons from and just applaud the scientists when they do great things. But you know, when people around you are having are going through a tough time, I think if you can even call that out because you never know, you know, when they snap, you don't have, never know where it's going to happen, if you're going to be in the room. And so we're all connected in this way. Something is happening to someone else. I think it's wise to speak up because we're all connected. And, and, and there's a family now without a mother because she's spending life in prison. And then there are, of course, families without their parents or without their, 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 yeah, either one of the parents because they were killed you know, because of this, this woman. So it's just something to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I should give credit to the scientist that these, this article was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nanad Sistan is his name. He said he, he was very, uh, a couple different mm. articles I was reading 
one was from the New York Times and the other one was from the Yale.edu, but both of them, he seemed to seems to be the sort of person that sort of uh, deflects any sort of praise. And he's just mm. like, no, 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 I'm not the first person to do this. And he, mm. you know, so I kind of like that about him, but I wanted to give him credit because apparently he may not be the first person to come up with, to discover the fact that maybe you can see this sort of activity um, right. in the brain, but he's the first person to keep pushing forward with it to try to yeah. est- establish this. So just to kind of give him some credit for that. And I think he's a top researcher because I was looking a little bit at his uh, publication record and, you know, publication is the currency in research. Like, so if you're a researcher <laughs> and you're, you're not publishing books, or articles, you know, things like that. And he published in Nature and that's a big deal. So mm. when researchers talk about publications, we have high impact publications and we have eh, not so. So when people that are not in research you know, go online and Google things and they find these scenes and they're saying, oh, there's this article online. When a researcher goes and looks at that article, we're looking at the credibility of that that journal and how the, the quality of work that they do. And Nature, where he published this work, is really one of the highest um, uh, impact journals. And so, you know, you can take information that you get from those journals as as closest to the truth as possible because you don't just publish stuff in nature. It goes through so many rounds of review and, you know, people critique your work and it's difficult to get into those journals. And so it tells, uh, you know, of his, the quality of his work. And the thing that you talked about, humility is big because um, that's something that the lady didn't have in the first story. She was always talking about Harvard educated, you know. I've seen people who, when they introduce themselves, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, even being a Black lady in America, or an African. I've seen people who, who, when they introduce themselves, they always say things like, I'm the first African to do this and or I'm the first Black person to do this. I understand the struggle, but sometimes I just, I cringe a little bit because that takes away from what you're actually, in, in some instances, that takes away from your message because then you're presenting yourself as not humble in some instances. And so if you continue to say or talk about yourself in the third person, or, you know, or, or, you know, talk about your own accolades, it also tells of the kind of person that you are. Mm-hmm. And so what you said about him being humble, I think that's just an excellent trait, actually, that people actually don't think about these days. And that's, that's really good. Wonderful. I really appreciate you coming, being willing to come on the podcast and offer your expertise and your wisdom and all the information. It's been a wonderful episode. This has been very enjoyable. I know my listeners are going to love it. It's, it's just been really nice having you on and I appreciate oh, it. Thanks for inviting me. I learned a lot too. Yeah. And I just want to thank you also because you're one of the people on the front lines also with this COVID-19 and you're risking your life and your Thank the you. life of your family and you know it's 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 difficult times that we are in and I think it's important that we celebrate each other and I think you're doing an exceptional job you know people are going to appreciate more these jobs that you know they probably haven't really thought about that you know this is essential now it's nurses and teachers and doctors and scientists and and the military and and the the airline workers and all these Absolutely. all these jobs grocery and store grocery workers store. Yes. <laughs> yeah you do literally yes <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you, I've mm-hmm. never appreciated a grocery store worker more in my life. I'm just yes. so thankful that they're willing yes. to do this. They are talk about risk. Money is one of the most disgusting, mm. germ-infested things you can touch, mm-hmm. and these people literally are—they are risking their lives. And I appreciate yeah. them so much. Yeah, and thank you, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. Well, can you uh, let my listeners know where they can find you? Where can they uh, come to like find you on social media, or if you have a website, that sort of thing? Yes, sure. So 
I have a website. It's called the Tales of an African Princess in America.com. And you can find me on wherever you get your podcast from. Just search for the Tales of an African Princess in America. And Instagram is African Princess in America. Yeah. Wonderful. And you guys know you can find me um Good Nurse Bad Nurse podcast mm-hmm. on Instagram, GNB and podcast on Facebook. You can email me if you want at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. Goodnursebadnurse.com is our website. And mm-hmm. I love to hear from you guys. Definitely send me your stories and just call in. We're gonna we just did our first live show this past mm-hmm. Saturday. That was so much fun. Just yesterday we did that. That was so much fun. It was uh, a little awkward just because mm-hmm. I'd never done it before, but that was great. We we said we're probably going to do that again, maybe once or twice a month, just because it was great. So much fun. Yeah. And you had someone else on there, actually. Are you usually two on the show, like two hosts on the show? Yes. I always have a guest host. Uh, There's another, yeah, someone else in the medical field. Mm -hmm. A lot of times nurses, sometimes, you know, just different, different people um, to try to bridge the the gap is some, that can happen sometimes mm-hmm. in the medical field and mm-hmm. tell different stories. And then, but yesterday it was so different because I linked in the, with all sorts of people. So Q, the nurse came on and a couple mm. different people, uh, Jay, that uh, she's a um, at the University of Memphis. She's a nursing student. So I had her okay. perspective mm-hmm. and a couple of other people. Uh, so yeah, it was fun. We'll probably do that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I guess with the COVID-19, it's still wash your hands and social distancing <laughs> and all yeah. that good stuff. Now um, more than ever, be mm-hmm. definitely doing what you're supposed to do. Stay out of the parks. No, yeah. you know, just people are just so stubborn, I guess. But we got to do our part. Mm. Do your part to keep everyone yeah. safe. Yeah. Well, I just want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.